Hello, my name is Tiina Vaittinen and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Tampere University, Finland. I have recently started a new research project that maps the global political economy of adult incontinence pads. This means, quite humbly, that I seek to understand everything that happens around the everyday commodity of the so-called adult diapers. In this podcast, however, we're not going to use the term diaper at all, as this has infantilizing connotations for the term adult incontinence pad, which, after all, is just another hygiene product that many grown-ups and adolescents use to get on with their daily lives. In this podcast, then, I will seek to sort of leak silence truths about the incredible world of incontinence. This world is super, super interesting and we should all know more about it. The podcast is produced as sort of a side stream of my research. I will talk with a whole range of experts about all kinds of matters to do with incontinence, from experiences of living with the condition to what causes it and how it can be treated or even cured, to environmental concerns of waste management and questions of infrastructure to market outlooks in the global continence product industry to the super, super interesting developments that are taking place in the field of continence technology. As a disclaimer, it really needs to be noted that I'm not a medical or health practitioner or medical or health expert. I'm just a social scientist. So although I will interview many health and medical experts in the show, the contents of the show should not be taken as medical advice. If you have problems with incontinence, please consult your doctor and please make sure that your doctor refers to the right kind of specialist so that you can get the right kind of help. So my research and therefore also this podcast are funded by the Academy of Finland and Conner Foundation and you will learn more about my research at www.patproject.online. If you know the Finnish language as well as English, please do check out also the sister show which is titled Vuotoja ja Ohivuotoja and do give feedback and subscribe to both at Spotify or iTunes. So welcome to the second episode of Pat Leaks. Before going into today's discussion where I speak with Dr. Leslie Dipley about fecal incontinence and inflammatory bowel disease or IBD, I want to go back to our last week's episode and make a small, rather embarrassing correction to what I said in that episode. Uh, Some of you might have noticed that there is a tiny arrow in numbers when I speak about the number of people living with urinary incontinence. In that episode I claim that it is four million people on this planet who live with urinary incontinence and I claim that twice and I also say that this number that is four million people is comparable to some of the world's largest countries by population. 
yeah, it just doesn't make sense, does it? Uh, the correct number is 400 million people. It is 400 million people on this planet who live with urinary incontinence. And it is a lot of people. I was last week just so focused on articulating the English language in an understandable way that, and really I was quite nervous about recording the first episode, that I didn't even notice this this error. And uh, I didn't notice it even though I had edited the episode and I had actually listened to it a couple of times before putting it online. So I'm so, so sorry. That is the only... uh, mistake or error or factual mistake made in that episode. Um, So anyway, it is 400 million people on this planet who live with urinary incontinence. And now, at least, I think you will remember that too. So it is a lot of people. But anyway, uh, today we will mostly talk about fecal incontinence. And I want to bring this theme right to the beginning of the podcast series, because these types of bodily leakages are usually those that are discussed last, if at all, when we talk about incontinence matters. And I will be joined by a wonderful scholar from the University of Greenwich, namely Dr. Leslie Dipley. Leslie is a reader in nursing research and education at the University of Greenwich. Prior to this, she's worked as a research fellow to Professor Kristen Norton at King's College London for nine years, during which time she was awarded her PhD for a hermeneutic phenomenology study of the experiences of stigma in people with inflammatory bowel disease, that is IBD. Leslie's originally trained as a registered general nurse, so she's also got this practitioner's background and she's really just wonderful, wonderful scholar and you should all go and find out about her work. So I'm just really happy that you could join me here today, Leslie. So thank you for, for, for this opportunity. Um, I don't know, my introductions are also, I feel that I'm never quite capable of introducing people in a proper way. So do you want to tell something more about your background and how you ended up studying these themes in the first place? Hmm. Uh, Thanks, Tina, for that uh, for that intro. Um, Yeah, I I indeed started working with Chris Norton at King's um, in 2008, completely by accident, really. Um, Very serendipitous moment. I had been uh, taking some time out. uh, to be at home with my small children at the time and um, was then starting to you know look for work and get back into the into into work and I didn't want to go back to clinical practice and I didn't want to really go back into um, le- lecturing I really wanted to pick up on and build up my interest in re- in research and I was just messing around Googling and, you know, looking for things and um, happened upon a post, uh, two year um, fixed term contract with Chris Norton um, at King's. And, you know, that was the start of, <laughs> of a beautiful relationship. We, I, I stayed there working with her for the um, uh, another nine years. And I just particularly developed uh, this interest around people with inflammatory um, uh, bowel disease and um and it kind of tied up uh you know my interest in marginalized groups as well so it was almost a given that the phd would be something to do with stigma and um uh, in, in some way um and the thing with inflammatory bowel disease is is you know it's it, it's a, it's a chronic condition that is incurable it's treatable but it's not it's not curable it it 
comprises mainly of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And with both of those conditions, there is a high uh, risk of um, fecal incontinence, so involuntary loss of um, stool. In, in, many, uh, in most instances, it's directly related to the um, level of activity of disease. So um, one of the features of, of um, uh, IBD is that it has this sort of relapsing remitting cycle. Um, mm -hmm. that is unpredictable. People can be in remission, so their disease can be very well controlled and they can be symptom free because medications are working, etc, etc, for uh, you know long periods of time and then something happens to disrupt that and they relapse and mm -hmm. so their symptoms get worse and flare up. Um, mm -hmm then it can get better again right yeah and then it, and then it can get better again so you know broadly speaking the the risk of of incontinence um ties up with the level of disease activity so you generally find that people who are in remission whose disease is well controlled clinically they they've got very few acute symptoms or they've got no acute symptoms and their medications are working tend not to have any problems with incontinence and then as the relapse builds or the flare the flare gets worse um, the more severe that gets then the higher the likelihood so what what happens in IBD is you get this uh, very broadly speaking uh, this inflammation in the bowel that um, disrupts the reabsorption of water through the colon because of the damage to the bowel because of the disease um, mm -hmm. and that means that you naturally because of that you produce a loose stool I mean that's what diarrhea is in, in mm. you know for anybody who has it, it it's to do with there being too much water you know uh, too much water staying in in the um, gut and not being reabsorbed back by the colon so that you produce mm. a watery stool instead of instead of a firm one and that is then the kind of fecal incontinence that comes with IBD, that it tends to be that like diarrhea type of, of fecal incontinence. Yes, it does certainly in um, in, in flare-up. But, but one of the things that Chris and I found in one of the early projects that we did that um, we reported on, I think, in about 2013, was flagging up the fact that for about 10% of the population of people with IBD, there is experience of incontinence even though they're in remission. And the importance of this was, you know, raising that awareness with clinicians because, you know, they naturally would, would think that if the person was clinically in remission, if their disease was well controlled, that there would be no problem with, with incontinence. And, you know, we were able to evidence that that's actually not the case. And for some people, no matter how well they are, they, they still um, have incontinence. And the, the incontinence in that case is generally about urgency. So the, the urgent requirement to go to the, to the loo. So when you get that first feeling that you need to go to the toilet and open bowels, it's called the call to stool. It's that signal that we get that we all, you can't really describe it. Everybody that is listening to this will know what I'm talking about because we yeah. all um, generally experience that that sensation that says right yeah. again. So say, say it again, call to stool. Call, call to stool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know what that sensation is, but you also know how much time you've got to to get from where you are to a toilet, whether you can delay it or not. And what happens with people with um, IBD sometimes, and it's often to do with, you know, whether there's any, any damage to those sensitive cells in the rectum that sense our need to go, uh, or, you know, inflammation because of the condition um, of IBD the urgency is greater. So meaning that as soon as you receive 
that call, that sensation that you may need to go, you haven't got very much time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you generally then cannot stop the process of the stool emerging until you get to, until you get to the to the bathroom. So you know, urgency is about the need to go and the need to go quickly. This actually does take me to one of the central questions because mm. I wanted to talk to you about fecal incontinence, particularly about uh, your work on this area and then mm. on IBD and, and psychosocial impact. But one of the things that even I and, and my listeners probably as well don't really necessarily know like what fecal incontinence really is and what types of fecal incontinence there are, because a lot of the work tends to focus on urinary incontinence. Mm. I know all the types of urinary incontinence, but then even with International Continence Society, they would type, give the typology of there are this and this many types of urinary incontinence, and then there is fecal incontinence. But Mm. of course, fecal incontinence must be much more than just one type. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay. Um, And, you know, again, I would defer to Chris, who will give you much more detail on this. You're generally talking about um, urgent continence, which is that that I've just described, where you just can't get to the toilet in time once you feel the need the the need to go. There's passive incontinence, which occurs without awareness. So um, that's more likely to happen where there's been some damage of some sort to the the structure, if you like, maybe the musculature. You've got two sphincters that control the opening and closing um, of the anus to allow the stool out. And if there's damage there, either, for example, through repeated um, inflammation scarring with um, IBD or because of some other things, say, for instance, um, an obstetric injury. So somebody, a woman who's who's had a baby and has had an extensive tear that has damaged the perineum and the margins of the uh, of the sphincters as well, of the external sphincter as well. You know, then you've got scarring and things like that. So obviously people who have spinal cord injuries or motor neurone um, deficits, so in conditions like multiple sclerosis, it's actually not possible to control. So does it mean does it mean then that there are sort of leakages or it's just kind of you don't even notice when your bowel empties? Yeah, I mean, in a passive incontinence, there's going to be leakages that you're not aware of until they're out. You're not going to be aware of them you know, mm-hmm. being passed, but of course, mm-hmm. once it's out and, and it's in your it's in the underclothes and the the smell is there as well, then mm-hmm. then it becomes you know very very apparent. Yeah, and and really, these are the things that we don't really know. Even for me, I think it took quite a while because starting to learn about issues about incontinence and starting to go through the the research literature you end up learning a lot about urinary incontinence so much and then only after a while you start asking like okay but what about the other leakages what about the other type of material that comes out from our bodies so why do you think we know so little about this topic oh it's undoubtedly to do with um, stigma and shame and embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it, the I, I, where to begin? I mean, it's such a it's such a big topic. But if there is urinary loss or a tendency to have um, urinary loss and leakage, 
firstly, it, it, it's probably easier to contain because it's liquid, it's more absorbable. It doesn't immediately stain in the same way. It doesn't carry an odour unless it's infected or contaminated mm-hmm. in some way. And it is perceived in a way that is not as dirty as stool. The problem with um, loss of of stool, especially if that happens in public, is the the evidence is is not concealable. Even if other people don't actually see the stool, they smell it. Um, they'll you know it will leave a mark or you know some kind of of stain or whatever, and. Uh, you know, all of that and how we as societies view that is wrapped up in our attitudes towards uh, hygiene and dirt and risk things. So we we probably tend to see urinary leakage as uh, less risky um, yeah. and less perilous and less yeah. of a hygiene threat. And we also, I think, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, um, see it as more normal if you like and almost uh, an inevitability and I'm sure Chris will have something to say about this Um, I don't know I don't know um, how it is in Finland but certainly in the UK at the moment we have um, advertisements on the TV um, for um, retainment products um, that are all um, focused on women Mm -hmm. and all focused on women who have uh, just had babies and it's mm-hmm. true you know if you have just had a baby your pelvic floor has got to get itself back together again and one in three women are left with urinary incontinence was it one in ten is left with fecal incontinence as well and that's okay. not really and and you know that's the interesting thing isn't it that that you know what I was was sort of saying is around the idea that we almost accept urinary incontinence or leakage postmenopause, which which mm-hmm. happens a lot and is generally more likely to happen in, in women who have had those traumatic deliveries earlier yeah. on. They have a traumatic delivery, recover from that apparently fine, mm-hmm. uh, carry on through life perfectly fine, and they hit menopause and they come mm-hmm. out of menopause with urinary incontinence. You know, we tend to go, oh yeah, but you know, it's, I don't know. And I, yeah. I remember interviewing a woman who had had twins and she had uh, it, I mean she was uh, quite elderly by the time I interviewed her and mm-hmm. she had carried these twins almost to term which is quite unusual as well you know twin um, pregnancies are often delivered a little earlier babies are a little bit smaller so these babies were big babies and she um, was you know uh, was in later life in incontinent mm-hmm. of urine and feces and she was you know her view was um, but, you know, I've got these lovely boys. So, you know, the, the, and, and so to go back to sort of the normalising of it and the way it's portrayed uh, in television adverts is very much this idea that, yeah, but that's what happens to women kind yeah. of thing. You know, there's never any adverts about men with um, u- urinary incontinence or, you know, uh, a- a- any of those issues as well. Or, or it, there is never any adverts on anybody with fecal incontinence. No. And I think with the, with the work with normalizing, I think there is such a fine line because some of these adverts, of course, also possibly do a good job yes. for helping people to feel better about their leaking bodies. But, I think this stigmatizing and normalizing 
work i think there's something super interesting going yes. on there yeah, yeah. Do, you want I, to, I, do you want to reflect on that a little well bit? i i think i think you're right i mean i think you know an, an awful lot of, of of women of my age and generation so i'm about to be 57 um, mm -hmm. you know are not going to go voluntarily go out in the garden and bounce up and down on the kids trampoline or anything yeah. like that you know and, well well and, i'm turning 40 and i'm not but, so. <laughs> but you know there is humor and light-hearted humor amongst women you know where the occasional stress urinary incontinence which is what that is when you sorry rare rare airplane flying over there hasn't been yeah um you know that that sort of stress incontinence that we might get with coughing or sneezing or, or you know laughing especially if, if, if the bladder is is a little bit full the majority of women if that happens very very occasionally for a specific you know event like that are just gonna go oh well you know it happens it's not mm. it you know it's and it's not a problem and it's certainly not you know not a problem that you know you would rush off and suddenly demand you know invasive interventions to exactly um, and you shouldn't and you shouldn't no, because no, there are no, other things you can that, do that, yeah that's, that's right that's right and i'm conscious that i might be biased in my view of this because all my work has really been about fecal incontinence mm -hmm. but it seems to me that this has a much bigger impact on people and you know you're quite right we don't see it advertised and we don't see it talked about because as a society we do not talk about poo yeah, we, it, yeah. It's that any any group does there's a, there's a really interesting um paper it's not very long but it came out of london school of hygiene and tropical medicine the late 1980s or the 1990s and groups of researchers conducted a survey at international airports so that they got a mix of cultures and people from all sorts of different countries right. and backgrounds and attitudes and they asked them their opinions about products or things that we might consider disgusting and they had mm -hmm. this huge list of things including like vomit or urine and stool of course feces and everybody absolutely everybody whatever culture they're from identified stool as the most disgusting product yeah i think that is exactly what makes studying poo so interesting but it, it is very interesting but i think that study is important because it flags up the link between the stigmas and taboo surrounding bowels and bowel activity and particularly inappropriate bowel activity exactly. and disgust okay broadly speaking people mm -hmm. <laughs> find uh, poo more disgusting than they you know they don't find we as disgusting as as, mm -hmm. as poo and yeah. it may well be because uh, oh, i'm thinking of all sorts mm -hmm. of quotes from participants in my studies you know i remember yeah. somebody saying to me once you cannot hide the evidence of it it's there on your yeah. shoe or on the floor yeah. or you know wherever yeah. it is there's no pretending that it hasn't happened because yeah. it you know it it gives you away in my thesis i i defined the lowest common denominator uh, of humankind yep. is that everybody needs to pee and poo yes and we do it in different ways. But then it's been very interesting to, to look at this taboo and the taboo within the taboo when it comes to feces. I think you can get to layers and layers and layers of different kinds of hierarchies, uh, like social hierarchies, when you think about pooing and especially the practice of pooing, practice yeah. of, of 
emptying your bowels and that's oh, why I, I absolutely love your work because oh, it's- thank you. and and there's a lot in there about societal expectations so if we think about how we are socialized you know you've just had your lovely new baby and you know it's all you know feeding them in one end and poo and we coming out the other end and mm. we're not appalled or disgusted by that in the same way as we are if that happens to an older child or an adult because we don't expect the baby to have that control Um, and then around about the age of three or four we start to get a fairly reliable control but much of that control is about socialization it's about you know being taught that it is necessary to have control over bladder and bowel because Mm -hmm. you can't leave home if you don't have that you know you cannot step outside of the place that you live in if you cannot predict you know manage to control and contain urine and stool and if you cannot do that reliably Um, and as we grow so we go through toddlerhood and, and and we get taught by our parents and none of us remember this but how we are taught by our parents I identify this in my PhD as one of many things that came out of it. But one of the things that is that that appears to have an impact on how we then respond to later incidents of either bowel disease or bowel accidents. So fecal incontinence and and urinary continence later on. That Um, is super interesting because, of course, now now that you say it, of course, potty training is so much more than potty training. It's like it's it's like it's a civilizing mission. It is. It is. How do you do that civilizing mission? I think obviously it has such a massive impact on on not only the individual psychology but the social psychology oh, of abs- absolutely i mean i can remember my my kids are, are are young adults now but you know i can remember you know when they were small discussions at nursery you know when you take them or play group or whatever it was you were taking long to and it was like you know along with the competition of whose child was sleeping through the night you know whose child was dry during the day or who's you know and all this kind of stuff and you know there you're completely right there is so much more to it than the biological um hygiene need to control these uh, actions even in um you know in any society what you know even the most remote indigenous groups that are not um connected you know with the outside world in any way you know anthropologists will tell you they have rules about where you urinate and defecate and those yeah, areas are yeah. outside of and away from yeah and uh, of course it has to be that way as well yeah, when it comes to yeah. hygiene and health and, yeah, exactly. and all that but then again there are still ways of doing it yeah, yeah. Uh, in a tender I, oh my god I start to think like how did I potty train my kid probably I was horrible <laughs> <laughs> because and not so much well maybe the disgust of the poo as well but but also because it's a lot of work Yes, for carer to clean yeah. up yes, for carer it, it, to clean up urine yeah. is so much easier than to clean yes. up the poo yes it's it is like, if you then you know extend that forward so you know you've had your lovely little baby and you've put up with the first that put up with it you've enjoyed the early um, weeks and months and a couple of years and you know there's no effort because to to to, to train them because they can't possibly understand and what it is trying to achieve so then around about three or four those things come in that enables them to go to nursery it enables them to go to preschool it enables them to then go to school um, and you know the trajectory of life as society has it organized 
um, you know, college or university or out to work and onward, you know, out into the world as an independent person is all possible because of, you know, well, obviously other things as well, but from the biological perspective, because of the ability to control urine and bowels. So it is therefore uh, a symbol of maturity and adulthood. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, that has uh, come up time and again in um, projects that Chris and I have done together and separately is, you know, this this notion of the loss of, of, of adulthood and the shame that people feel when they cannot maintain the rules that society places on how urine and bowels are to be controlled. Yeah. So talking about that, actually, you um, well, urinary leakages are so much kind of easier to manage. Yeah. Well, say with incontinence pad. But yeah. what kind of technologies are there for fecal incontinence? Because the pad, it doesn't work as well as. Um, no, it or, doesn't. Yeah, because... yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, back at the beginning when we were talking about uh, people with inflammatory bowel disease and they often get increased incontinence with increased severity of disease activity. And in those cases, although they have... Uh, an increased uh, um, frequency of incontinence that happens more often, they're also so ill that they're likely to be at home. So in actual fact, although there's a lot, uh, you know, occasions of needing to open the bowels, they're at home near a toilet and they might be going to the toilet 20 or 30 times a day, but yeah. they're still able to mostly get, get there on time. Mm-hmm. Then if you talk about people who have this persistent incontinence that's either not related to disease activity or is a, is a passive thing, it's like to be a firmer stool. And then, you know, the, the problem that you then have is that, you know, a pad is not going to contain a firmer stool because there's nothing for it to absorb. For a firm stool, a pad is not going to work. It's just going to sit, the, the stool is just going to sit there on the top. And, you know, the, the, the best you can say is that it might prevent staining of, of, of underwear and, thing, and, and that. Yeah. But it's going to do anything to deal with the smell or with the odour. Pads for uh, incontinence of a, of a relatively solid stool are, are really not terribly effective. So... Um, what technologies can you use then? Okay, well, there, you know, there are various things about, you know, what something that is very good uh, for a passive incontinence. So that mm-hmm. type that happens when you don't really, you're not really aware of is um, anal plugs. So these are a bit like tampons that go up your bum. Mm-hmm. And um, some people uh, can't even tolerate the idea of them. Um, mm-hmm. Other people can tolerate the idea of them, but can't tolerate the feel of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some people, they work very nicely because they just prevent that passive leakage. And then when they get home or to whether they, wherever it is they are and they know they're in a safe um, place and they've got a toilet and everything, they can just remove um, the plug and, you know, the stool can emerge and be contained in the toilet or whatever. So, so, so that is one option. Chris will probably talk to you a lot about bowel retraining. I remember when I was first working with her thinking, really? <laughs> you can you can retrain your bowel. You can retrain like, your how? bowel, you know, how how can you possibly but it is 
So Bell, Bell retraining, and, and like I said, Chris will give you much more detail, but it's, in, it's almost um, confidence retraining more than, mm -hmm. than anything else. So, um, you know, very, very briefly, and do talk to her about it because she'll give yeah. you on this than me. Um, you know, you, you start out sort of um, sitting on the toilet and trying to hold for as long as you can when you get that feel that you need to go. And it doesn't uh -huh. matter if you can't hold for very long because you're sitting on the toilet. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, yeah. you can only hold for a couple of seconds. Yeah, but it's a couple of seconds. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, once you've achieved that a few times, then you can, you know, move to sort of being in the bathroom, but not on the toilet. Um, right. So, you know, you're just moving a little bit further away, but you're still within in reach of your uh, of the loo. And, um, you know, when you're successful with that, you move a bit further away. And, you know, it, it, it is it is all about the, con oh, I can do this. Oh, I can. Uh -huh. I but oh my God, that does sound like hard work and sort of the systematic work that it takes. Yes, it is. Yes, I mean, she'll also talk to you about, um, you know, pelvic floor exercises. You know, you can have manometry testing so they can do things like, you know, put this sensor up your bum and you squeeze and it, it tests, right. measures yeah. how much of a squeeze you've got and how you how well you can you can hold yeah and one of the things that chris will say to you is that you know what you don't want is absolute max squeeze because you can't maintain that for very long yeah it's a bit like it's a bit like the difference between a sprint and a marathon you know right. if you all your effort in on a sprint you're going to go you know it, it's going to be very effective but only for a short period of time right. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you if you want to be able to last longer, you have to um, spread your energy and your effort out. And yeah. you know, she will, uh, you know, undoubtedly talk to talk to you about about that, about you know, getting that, um, learning the amount of uh, squeeze that you need to hold that doesn't then fatigue the sphincter. Yeah. A lot of the issue around fecal loss with incontinence comes down to confidence and self-esteem. And, you know, the, the, the problem for many people is that once they have an episode like that, they think it will happen again and therefore they stop everything. So I've certainly interviewed people who had one episode of incontinence in public and never left the house again because they're so afraid and that this this is a, a really strong theme that comes out of all of the work that we have done they are so afraid of being incontinent in public because of the shame and humiliation that that causes them because they expect to be viewed negatively by other people you know they expect to be treated negatively and viewed negatively so they are anticipating um stigma and stigmatizing mm. attitudes from other from other people and they would rather not put themselves at that risk so they'll stay at home but if you're in your 30s you know that's a problem that's yeah. a problem it's 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 a big problem because then you've got to think well how do I survive if I'm yeah. not going out to work and I can't you know if I can't work um and then you're faced with the problem of you know do I apply for benefits and then I have to tell everybody why I'm and, and again how this all relates back to that civilizing mission yeah. of potty training and and yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm thinking now with this sort of the bowel retraining in terms mm. of as a meth as a social scientist, because of mm. course this is a this is about training individual persons bowels. Mm. But I'm thinking about how about we turn that back to society and how should the society be retrained? Just thinking mm. this metaphor now like bowel incontinence, the this 
the retraining of society's bowels. Yeah. So, so what do you think? Like, what can we do? Like, apart from in, having this individual having to do a lot of work, and well, we can, you know, the, the the most obvious thing is to have, you know, uh, more availability of uh, of toilets when you're outside of the house. So again, in the UK, generally speaking, you have to you know, purchase something or, you know, use the, be a customer in mm -hmm. a restaurant or cafe or bar or whatever mm. to be able to use their, to, to be able to use their facilities. You know, that, that's not great if you're, well, it's not great if you're a person who, who struggles with urgency and you're in a, in a hurry. And, you know, in the UK recently, we've had a lot of, um, you know, we, we, when we had sort of the austerity measures and a lot of public services were being closed down and an awful lot of public toilets have been closed down. And, you know, loads of people that I've interviewed um, would plan their trips by according to where, you know, pubs and supermarkets were exactly for that reason, that they can go in and out unnoticed. Uh, yeah, but it is about. I think you're right. It's about retraining social attitudes towards towards this. And uh, interesting, actually, I, I had an an episode recently. I, I'd gone shopping in a in a city um, near mm. where we are. So it's quite a drive, and you know, by the time I got there, the several cups of tea that I'd had in the morning. Was right <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking, well, it's okay because I know that uh, you know near the shop that I'm going to, there are public toilets. Yeah. Uh, and I get there and they're closed. I mean, they're, oh they're like boarded up, you know, the whole darn thing. And I'm thinking, right, OK, now what am I going to do here? Because <laughs> yeah. there we are now. There is no supermarket. There, There is no pub. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. And there was a, a charity shop across the road from the one that I want to go in. And I thought, well, OK, then let's see how charitable they are. <laughs> um, and, and then I went and, you know, asked if I could um, use their loo because I needed a wee. And this woman, I kid you not, she looked me up and down. Really? Right? So she scanned me from my face down to my feet <laughs> back up again. And she had this look on her face that kind of like, ugh. And I, I said to her, you don't have to look at me like that. You know, I'm, oh, well done. I, I'm asking you a perfectly simple thing. If you do not let me use your toilet, I am going to wet myself. Now, not everybody can do that. You know, and I just kind of thought, I had no choice and I wasn't ashamed or embarrassed about it. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden she's like, oh, no, 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 that's absolutely fine. Come this way. And I thought, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, um, but, you know, people shouldn't have to do that. And for somebody who is really, really in a hurry, that kind of delay can be the difference between, yeah. um, you know, getting there in time and, and, and not getting there in time. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the problem that we had that, uh, you know, what I sensed in her was this mistrust. It was almost like she thought that because obviously to use the staff toilet you've got to yeah. go through the back of the shop and all this yeah. kind of stuff but you know that is the kind of thing that that, that that people have to deal with and lots of people will not even will not do what I did and, and, and call people out on it. it it is a case of, of changing attitudes and it is so interesting that something that that everybody does as you mentioned earlier is the last thing anybody talks about And also I'm thinking like, because obviously building an adequate number of toilets in public spaces, it's, it's the key thing. So this has also a massive impact on, on planning of infrastructures. So it's it, not just... It, it's very true, but it's, it's so cultural as well. And, the, the, you know, the differences, I mean, in, 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 the, in the UK, I, I think we're very, very private about these things. Mm. And, you know, if there are public 
toilets available, we want them to, to, to be provided in such a way that your use of them is not highlighted anyway. So these kind of like pods that are plonked mm. on a street and, you know, um, you're going in and going out of them is very obvious and the uh, risk of the door opening, people concern mm. is the door will open on them while they're still in there kind of thing, are, you know, unlikely to be terribly, terribly popular. Um, whereas, you know, like toilets at train stations where there's lots of use, you have to pay for them, but there's lots of people back and forth all the time. And you yeah. can get, people can lose themselves, in, get lost in the crowd. So it, it anonymizes the, the, the process, if you like. These things, it, it's so, it's like everything I think that is, is taboo. It's, it's very often um, rooted in ignorance and misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the assumption that people, society in general has, that, that people who have urinary and bowel accidents do it almost deliberately is ridiculous. You know, why yeah. would anybody, why would anybody deliberately want to do that? You know? yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we need a bit more kindness, I think, and a bit more understanding that if somebody asks for our help in um, a situation like that, instead of being suspicious and all the rest of it, we should be looking to be supportive. Exactly, exactly. And also that that it is really just one minor, if, if we think about toileting routines, yeah. it's just really one minor part of who I am. So yeah. why should it, if you live with incontinence, why should that then define your life? Ah, well, you see, I think that's the bit that, that leads us back to the childhood socialisation. That, yeah, that, again, you know, if, that's if, true. If, if you've had it drummed into you at a very early age that you can't remember because it was, you know, when you were yeah. three or whatever, um, that the whole uh, toilet thing is is disgusting and awful and uh, we don't talk about these things and, you know, it's all messy and yucky and, oh, look, you've made a mess and I've got to clear it up. Yeah. Um, even though you may not realise it and you're not conscious of it generally in adult life, that is, is going to inform the way that you respond and behave to those things you, you, yourself and I found that very clear PhD the difference between um, people who had you know where in childhood um, you know pr absolute privacy around uh, bodily functions and um, obsessions with cleanliness and all that kind of stuff they were they, they, they struggled much more with stigma shame and embarrassment about with the the um, incontinence they now experienced as adults because of their bowel disease than did others um, mm. so you know for example I had one participant who described her upbringing as very Victorian mm -hmm. um, a very a very uh, strict father and you didn't talk about periods and you didn't talk about sex and you certainly didn't talk about you know going to the toilet and all of those things happened in in silence uh, and were never were never ever discussed and when I interviewed her, she was in her late 60s, I would say, and was very, very focused on the image that she portrayed to other people, not wanting to um, disrupt their view of her as this um, clean, tidy, contained yeah. person. Yeah. And in contrast, I had another participant who's, um, who came from a family of something like 10 or 12 children. And yeah. so, um, you know, you don't have 10 or 12 children all at once. You have them over a, 
over a period of years. So so old as children got older, they became aware of, of, of younger siblings coming along behind them. And um, so they were socialized in this world of nappy buckets and toileting and, and getting them all through the bathroom in time to be able to go to school was like a military um, operation. <laughs> but it was all very open, you know, and yeah. they would just sort of ask, you've been to the loo before you go off to school and things like that. And, you know, so for, for that part, participant uh, in my PhD, it was all very much more pragmatic. Well, this is a thing that happens, you know, and um, it isn't everything about me. Yeah. So, you know, when you when, when 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 you sort of comment on, you know, there's much more to me than this in, incontinence. Um, I really think that there's something there about the, the significance of, you know, how we are socialized uh, about these things in 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 our early childhood that, that yeah. makes a difference to the way that we respond and behave behave with them in, in, in adulthood. Yeah, and that has repercussions also like how we how we see other people's incontinence. Mm -hmm. I suppose in, just increasing information on on incontinence. Yes, yes. And, you know, there are initiatives going on. For, for people with um, IBD, you know, the, the um, support organisation Crohn's and Colitis UK um, have run a very, very effective campaign about, um, you know, not every every disability being visible, mm -hmm. and uh, and that sort of being applied um, as a sticker on um, disabled facility toilets mm -hmm. um, to try and overcome this, you know, this attitude that we tend to have as a society that a disability, what disability is understood as immobility, um, mm -hmm. and. A, there are so many other things that are disabling um, exactly. that are not to do with physical um, ability or mobility, but are everything to do, uh, you know, with disrupting um, mm -hmm. their ability to uh, to function in in the way that they want to. Um, and that campaign has been taken up by, you know, most of the major supermarkets and has has been very very effective. You see it on trains somewhere yeah. as well. Uh, but, and in terms of services, and what I um, am aware of, you know, we're very good in the UK at providing continence services for urinary incontinence. But a study we did with people with um, multiple sclerosis who had problems with um, their bowels as well, you know, highlighted the fact that, um, you know, nobody is really ready or prepared for supporting people with um, bowel incontinence, or they are prepared to, but the process of referral takes so long. If you've got somebody who, say for example is 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 constipated which you know you might think that's less of a problem but it, it's not and you can get overflow with that as well which is masquerading as incontinence mm -hmm. and it takes three months to get a referral and mm -hmm. then it takes another two months for any medication to have effect you know that, that that's really not okay and especially because it is such a stigmatizing condition right. sorry well, I, I was just remembering you'd asked me about things that could be done and you know some other things that you can do uh like tend to um, diet, you know, for some people it's not the same for everybody, um, and it certainly won't be the same trigger for everybody. But some people might find that removing certain foods or types of foods from their diet, it, it, you know, reduces uh, either the volume of, of stool that they're producing or the sensitivity of um, of their bowel. And that's just mm. about playing around with what you eat, noticing patterns between what you're eating and then when the urgency. Um, um, arises and seeing mm. if you know and, and it can be very very surprising um, mm. 
know, the thing that can can be the problem. And the other option, another option, of course, is um, anti-motility agents. So things that slow down the mm. um, the, the bowel. Now you, you've got to use these really um, in the long term on the advice of your doctor. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know there are drugs that slow down, dampen down the the squeeze. Mm. Uh, that, squeeze the, the, the sort of ripple effect that goes throughout when you swallow mm. something and goes down your esophagus and through your stomach and through your intestines is peristalsis that's the thing mm. that moves everything along and um you can slow down the peristalsis in 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 the gut with some uh, uh medications um, and that can be really useful if used in a targeted way so if somebody knows they've got to travel for example mm -hmm. um uh, you know, that can be a very effective uh, way of making sure they get from A to B um, quite safely. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The thing that I um, remembered uh, that I was trying to think of was, was the gastrocolic reflux. So this is a really easy um, trick and everybody has this. So, you know, everybody listening to this program, both of this podcast will um, recognize that you know they get up in the morning um, yeah. generally speaking bowels are more active in the morning than they are in the evening but you yeah. get up and after a period of inactivity because you've been asleep all night you start moving around and you then have something to eat and drink and you have your coffee or your tea or whatever and that generally stimulates bowel activity mm -hmm. um, so uh, something that uh, that 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 you can do if you're if you're a little bit more at risk of um, incontinence uh, or you're concerned about it is use that to your advantage. So you mm -hmm. know planning your it's still tedious that you have to plan your day, but the benefits are worth it. You know if you know you've got to be out somewhere at ten o'clock and you know that generally about an hour after you get up and have breakfast you need to go to the loo then you that's you plan your day that in that way so efficient time um to be able to do your morning routine so that it starts that gastrocolic response and um bowels are empty you know before before you go out i mean what what i found with lots of people with ibd is that they then wouldn't eat all day is not a good idea especially in a community like that that is generally fatigued anyway because of their condition to avoid um you know further episodes and they don't eat when they're out well you know it's difficult if you're out at work all day but if you're just going to the supermarket you're just going out for a couple of hours actually planning it around um the the, the gastrocolic response can be very um useful yeah and i suppose this is one of the things that that also a lot of people living with incontinence do on a daily basis so mm -hmm. there's a lot of thinking work going yeah. into a lot of if we if we think about what makes us tired in our everyday yeah. lives many of us are really tired about planning all kinds of things yeah, yeah, so yeah. this is just one extra planning thing that yeah. you have to be doing yeah, every yeah, single is. day yeah also yeah go on so you can do you can do things you know it's it, i think for a lot of people it's about taking charge of it for yourself so rather yeah. than rather than um you know living in fear of the accident occurring exactly. it's, uh, it's about identifying the things that are likely to make it occur and what you can do to mitigate yeah. that so yeah. that um you know morning routine thing and making sure that you you know if you if you need to you know go to the loo and take a book with you to read or something so yeah. you sit there for long enough to make sure that you're completely empty before yeah. you move you know, yeah. don't book appointments yeah. first thing yeah. in the morning you know yeah. don't put stress on yourself 
of you know having to get to a nine o'clock or a ten o'clock um, meet uh, appointment if that is difficult for you to do simply yeah. moving it into the afternoon later yeah. in the day um, is likely to take an awful lot of pressure off yeah 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 and also having that I suppose when when it becomes possible to talk about these things more um, having the chance to get the peer support once there is more open space to talk about incontinence, it'll be more it'll yeah. be easier to also share tips of yes. how to manage yes. this condition. You know, come up with all kinds of amazing things to yes, improve that, their lives. That, that's right. And you know, nowadays there's sort of like a toilet apps that will tell you where there are public toilets and all this, yeah. all this kind of thing. I think it's really important that we um, we stress the point that. You know, if somebody um, becomes incontinent or is having problems with incontinence, they need to seek medical advice yes. to make sure that there isn't an underlying something um, exactly. that can be treated and managed. All right, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for a second suggesting that people should just put up with the situation they find themselves in um, yeah. and deal with the um, symptoms because you know a symptom is a sign of something else um, and it may well be that once investigated uh, the cause is found and and there isn't um, a you know a particular you know magic pill or magical intervention that will will cure it but at least you will know um, that there isn't something that could be um, improved that has been missed. So it's really, really important that that the cause of the incontinence is understood. Exactly, the cause, and then thereby also the type of incontinence. Yeah, yeah. And, and thereby also the type of things that are likely to be um, effective. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. one of the things that I find super fascinating in this field is that although it seems that we don't like wider society doesn't really talk about incontinence that much mm -hmm. and doesn't really talk about the treatments and cures or management tech technologies. But once you get into the field, you can see that there is loads going on. Yeah. Different kinds of treatments are developed all the time different yeah. kinds of new better management technologies so that's another really yeah. a reason to not only go to the top doctor doctors but also kind of making sure that you get yeah. to the kind of specialist that yeah. understands this condition yeah. because one of the wor worrying i don't know how it works in the uk but at least in the in finland it seems that um on the level of primary care yeah. There is not adequate knowledge of yeah. all the things that you can do to help people yeah. living with incontinence. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. so the first thing, go to the doctors, but also yeah. kind of push to get to the specialist. Yes, uh, that that is, um, you know, precisely it. Now, in the in the UK, we have um, nice guidelines on um, managing um, faecal incontinence in adults. It makes it very clear that clinicians, primary care wherever should be actively asking patients if they have problems with continence absolutely in in the kind of um, patient populations where you might expect it to occur so menopausal women you know people who've had any kind of um, anal or rectal surgery people who've got any kind of bowel disorder people who've had um, bowel surgery for uh, rectal cancer or anything mm. like that you know in these populations, they should be being routinely asked. Because Are they not? 
Um, no. Um, really? It seemed, yeah, and you know, why is that? Well, that's very interesting. You know, we, uh, clinicians don't ask and, and people don't tell, and it's all, again, tied up in this. This is not a topic we talk about. People are very embarrassed to go and admit that they have um, a, a problem in this way because they fear the response that they're going to get. Of course, but this is clinical practice. Yes, I this know. Shouldn't I, be I, a, yes. Yes, this, yeah. is, this, this is another thing that continues to kind of yeah. shock me, yeah. that ta it is a taboo in the wider society, but within the health system, yeah. it well, really should not be. No, you're right. And, and, you know, again, I'm not for a minute suggesting that clinicians do respond in a, an inappropriate way, um, mm. but they can't respond in any way if they're not, if they're not told. Um, and then so, you know, if you flip the coin and say, well, why don't they ask? And I think part of the problem of that historically has been because they don't know what they're able to offer if they uncover a problem, um, because there's nothing worse than, you know, being asked if you've got a problem with something and, and, and you admitting, you know, yes, mm -hmm. you know, I occasionally lose control and, you know, have bowel incontinence. And mm -hmm. then person, you know, the person who's asked you saying, Oh um, well, that's bad luck. But there's not really anything I can offer you to help. You know, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. That's true. Um, yeah. So I think historically there has been a bit of that. But you know, as we have, um, you know, as we've mentioned and, and discussed in in this podcast, there are things that can be done, um, and clinicians can make a very good start um, by you know create uh, asking the questions in in the right way to enable people to say something. So. You know what we gen what you generally find is that if you provide people with an opportunity, they will tell you. In all the studies we've we've done, the majority of people have said, "I would rather the clinician started that conversation because I don't know how how to begin it." We very recently completed um, a, a, a multi-part study, and the first was to um, try and identify to address this problem to try and identify the best way of finding. Uh, among the people amongst your patients who have problems with bowel incontinence and is it better to ask them directly face to face and just come out with it or yeah. is it better to um, give them sort of a, a little form that they can fill in um, so they don't have to say anything they don't have to verbalize the problem and uh, so we did this study well in a community of people with inflammatory bowel disease and, and, and um, half of them you know completed the survey themselves and the other half um, the nurse completed the survey with them, so the nurse asked the questions, and uh, but it was the same survey. And um, you know, there, there's very little difference in it. Uh, both are equally effective, at, right? Um, at at finding uh, people who have got the problem and and giving them the opportunity to say that yes, they want help for it. Mm. Um, so you know, we're 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 about to publish that and. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you know, there are ways of doing it. Yes, and there, there are. There, yeah, there yeah. are, and you yeah. know, until we did that, nobody really. Until we did that study, nobody really. Well, how do you find them? You know, how do you ask? And we've, you know, we're basically able to say, you can You can either ask them outright, or you can give them a little thing they can fill, so they can fill in by themselves. And mm. either of those techniques is going to work. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, it, 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 it's not going to make sure that every person that has a problem tells you they have a problem but it will enable those who want to. to yeah, take. exactly. It will provide the space to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It will be that initiative, even yeah. if it's if it's just a form. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, it, you know, it may very well be that somebody gets asked and they say no. Um, they have got a problem, but they say no because they they don't want to talk about it at that point. But they go away and think about it and mm-hmm. then come back and say, well, actually, yeah, uh, you know, but they're like you say, once the space is created and, and the patient knows that the clinician is open to the possibility of, of, of that problem, um, yeah. then they are more likely to um, come back at a later time and, um, you know, tell them about yeah. it yeah. yeah yeah i think you know what i think this might be a good place to stop here i yeah. didn't actually we we could talk for ages and i well, think i'm gonna do and I, I think half, so. yeah i think i'm gonna do another one with you at some point because okay. i do want to talk to you about the yeah like your kind of your core topic on the psychosocial impacts of yeah. incontinence but i think we will do that later on when we'll kind of gather more information <laughs> all together yeah. on the thing. But thank you so, so much. This was just so interesting. Yeah, and uh, some of these things are just mind blowing. And, and But also, I think a lot of the things that you said uh, are also the kind of things that give hope. Yes. Because it's not it's not necessarily that big issues that we need to sort out in the society to make give, provide more space for people living with incontinence and living a good life with incontinence and it kind of starts with all of us and how yeah. the society is built and how we that these things can be fixed yeah. uh, not necessarily the condition itself cannot always be fixed but then you can still there are ways of leading a good life yeah. with uh, with incontinence and i think that's that's sort of a message of hope <laughs> Thank you, Leslie. Thank you so You're much. And, and you can be sure that I will get back to you at the later stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this was the second episode of Pat Leaks, a podcast on everything to do with incontinence. My name is Tina Vaittinen and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at Tampere University, Finland. This podcast is part of my research project on the global political economy of the adult incontinence pad. And today I had the pleasure to talk with Dr. Leslie Dipley from the University of Greenwich. My research and therefore also this podcast are funded by the Academy of Finland and Conner Foundation. And you will learn more about my research at www.patproject.online. If you know the Finnish language as well as English, please do check out also the sister show, which is titled Vuotoja ja Ohivuotoja, and do give feedback and subscribe to both at Spotify or iTunes.